for not being a professional preacher. Uh, I rarely have bullet points uh, in my sermon. The truth be told, I never, I never outline anything. Um, but even so today, it might be more of my weekly conversation with Jesus. And so if it seems uh, a little bit uh, 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 random, I don't mean it to be. Because for me, it seems like one big word, return. It, it themes itself to me when God speaks to me. And so I kind of put that together. Um, I'm basically going to share with you kind of my week with Jesus today. And so if it's more like waves than uh, running water, uh, you know, it comes with crashes more than uh, just a solid uh, tone, then you'll just have to bear with me this morning. But, but we're going to start right here at least. We'll start in something familiar in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And we're going to start with the prodigal son story. And I know you've heard it, and I know you've heard it from me probably for the last two, three weeks now. But let's, let's look at it one more time. Praise God for the white noise of children. Man, I'm going to tell you what. Go without it for a week and see how much you miss it. Praise God for the white noise of children. That's not a distraction, folks. Luke 15, 11. We're going to be right there to verse 11. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the, about the time his money ran out, a great famine had swept over the land and began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything, and when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get the ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but is now found. And so the party begun. So I've been thinking a lot about the prodigal son story lately, um, of how much we're a lot like the prodigal son. And I know really that's what we always view that thing, and I've kind of tackled this from all different kinds of ways, but for some of us, this is really like us. We, We have such ambitions. I mean... We do. I mean, I remember being, getting out of the Marine Corps, and, and I was offered a really good job where I started making a little bit of money, and I actually could see the potential, and it, they did a really good job in teaching me how to work hard. It was a commissioned job, and by the way, I think every teenager should work a commissioned job, by the way, just because you learn a work ethic. You learn that if I work hard, I'm rewarded equally for what I work. And, and I, I, I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time learning and seeing those things and, and, and growing in that area, and um, I, I found myself being uh, uh, changed and transformed, but I also found myself being uh, changed and transformed, not necessarily the way that's great. I found myself being ambitious for finances, 
find myself being ambitious for a lot of things. But, but the, the irony is, is after I lived those things for a while, they weren't ever things that made me happy. They weren't ever things that made me, uh, fulfilled me or anything like that. And, and a lot of us, for us, are, you know, it, it was good at first. I bought my first car. It was awesome. Uh, when I bought my house, it was awesome. Man, I had a house up in Terrell with swim pool and a lot of those things. And I thought, that's going to be it, man. That's going to make me happy. And it didn't. When I worked more hours, it seemed like the more I worked, the less I had. And I felt a lot like the prodigal when I read this this week. That I have these dreams and I have these ambitions, but they're so temporary and they're not fulfilling. And there's this immediate form of pleasure, right? There's this immediate, like, uh, um, gratification just in what you're doing. I'm working hard. I'm receiving the, the, the reward for my hard work. But how come I can take no pleasure in it, right? Because the, the truth being told, uh, I'm really not putting much into my future. I'm not thinking about what's ahead or, or, or anything else. I'm just really thinking about how can I be happy right now, which, you know, for the prodigal, it puts him in lonely places. Places he, he didn't want to be, doing things that he didn't want to do, uh, all for the sake of what? Some wild living. I mean, he lived, and he'll have a story, but it sure is a short one. So he plans to return, you know it, to return to his father, take whatever he can get, right? Man, whatever this guy's got coming, I'm poor, got nothing. I squandered everything my, not only I had, listen, but my father had for me. I squandered it all. I've got nothing left. Uh, he's hoping that if he can be a servant or a slave, it ought to work out pretty good because he realizes truthfully what he's done. He realizes the weight of what he said to the Father. He realizes these things. He knows that what he has said and what he's done deserves for his sonship, his sonship to be broken. Right? So he's thinking, dude, servant or slave, that'll be a good thing for me. That'll be far better than where I'm at. And, and he practices what he's going to say. Come on, we all do that, right? I don't know, as a kid, man, I'll tell you, when I got caught and I knew I had to go face my parents, I would like, all right, what am I going to say? Let's get the story straight. But I think we do that. I think when we approach difficult situations, we think, there's times where I talk in the car, when I'm mad, things I just would want to say to somebody, but I didn't. You know, I kept my mouth shut like it was wise to do, but that stuff's got to come out somewhere. Sometimes it comes out to God, can I be honest with you? Like, I would have said this, and it would have been so good, it would have taken them down. And here's this young man who's been a slave, who's been feeding the pigs, which, by the way, for a Jew is not all that great. And here he is, he's feeding the pig, and he doesn't want to be there, and he hates what he's doing, and he's miserable. And everything he thought of his future was going to be, it's so not. And he's practicing, this is what I'm going to say, this is what I'm going to say. It'll convince him to take me as a servant or a slave. And just upon seeing the son return, the father doesn't even let him get a word out. And he just runs out to him. He doesn't let him say anything. He doesn't let him talk. He says nothing. It says that he's a long ways off. And you picture the moment he's sitting out there looking out the house. You know God, he's drinking a cup of coffee. That's what God does. God drinks coffee, by the way, guys. And it's a godly thing. And, and out there in the distance, he sees him like walking up. You know that scene from Pride and Prejudice, girls? You know it. Where he's coming at the end, and he's walking across the grass out there, right? And, and he just runs to him. And he's like, and he's about to say something, and he can't. 
because it's that old bear hug that just reaches you, grabs you up, and just so happy that you see him. And he puts him down, and he still can't get a word in edgewise because the father's already busy plotting and planning the celebration. Now, that's nothing new. You haven't heard anything new, but I ask myself, why is the father so eager to forgive something and seemingly so insensitive and truthfully hateful? I struggle there. Gotta be honest. If you come at me insensitive and truthfully hateful, it's gonna be hard for me to forgive you. But the Father does it to me every time. Just this past Friday, I got home from work, and as I was coming in, Reese was leaving to go to the movies uh, with some of her friends. She's got little bitty friends that like to go to the movies. Uh, it's like she's already a teenager. I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do there. So the rest of us, we got some dinner to settle down for the night. I kind of retreated to my, to my bedroom to relax and uh, watch some Netflix. And uh, I hear Reese come in a few hours later. Uh, she's come back from the movies. Uh, and it's about 20 minutes later that I can hear something, or I smell something completely burning and just the nastiest smell. And uh, I don't hear my wife panicking, so I know the house isn't on fire. Uh, but I decide to go ahead and check it out. Um, I walk in to see Reese. She is in the middle of our kitchen, and she's crying pretty bad. And uh, I ask what's going on. Joy tells me, well, Reese was trying to cook some rice in the microwave, which she knows how to do, but the plate she was using was not microwavable. <sighs> yeah, so it started to melt and stink and catch on fire and all that good stuff. And apparently Reese was crying because she thought that I would come in there and just storm in and whip her tail. Now, let's be honest in my house. For Reese, a spanking is like the boogeyman. Um, it's more myth than truth. She's heard of it, but has never really seen it. All right? So I see her crying there in the middle of the room, and uh, it hits me that, you know, she's sorry. She's sorry. Um, and I have this, like, pastoral moment. Uh, and I hope you have these with your kids. But it hits me that her mistake is a fragrance throughout our entire house. I, I don't have to reveal her mistake to her. I can smell it. We all smell it. And in that moment, I can get mad. I can do two things there. I can get mad and, uh, about what's already been done and banish her from the microwave uh, and reaffirm what she had already learned, all right? She had already learned what, what was wrong there, or I can forgive her. Now, I reach out to her, and I grab her, I, I grab her up, and I just hug her because she's crying, man, and she's just waiting for me to pounce. And so I reach over, and I grab her, and I hug her, and she cries and cries as I hold her. And the more she cries, the harder I hold her. And I bend down, and I whisper in her ear that sometimes we make mistakes and that it's okay. She's not only forgiven but let's see if we can do this together now. And it hits me. <laughs> In that moment, while the prodigal father runs to the child. Because the father places all his value in his children. It's simple. He could care less about stuff. I don't care about their microwave. I don't care about the plate. That's not a big deal. I don't care about possessions. God wants a voluntary relationship with us. That's all I want with my daughter where we can fully appreciate him 
appreciate his love, his heart. In that moment, I get to be Jesus to her. In that moment, that is what we are, crying in the middle of the room because our sin is like a fragrance that stinks up the whole house. And we're crying because we know God is going to be so angry with us. Why? Because we are so angry with us. And in that moment, we do it again. I've said this over and over all week long. We make God in our image instead of his image in ours. I mean, that's, it's, we've got it messed up, man. We are made in God's image, not the other way around. When we're angry with us, that does not mean God is angry with you. That does not mean that. But that's what we're like. We're like Reese, man, in the middle of the room crying. Sin, smell it. We, everybody can smell it, man. We can all tell you messed up and made a mistake. And we're waiting. We're crying because we know everybody's going to be upset. Everybody's going to be angry. And God looks over and he says, man, he sees him a far way off. God, I know my dad's going to be angry at everything I've done. I, I've said so many mean, hateful things, spiteful things. And in the end, he, you don't even get to win a word in an edgewise. Reese didn't even get to say anything. I said, I forgive her. I hugged her until she stopped crying. And then we helped fix the, and remedy the situation. We cleaned it up. Took a while for the smell to go away. How many of you know sin just don't go away easy? But it gets cleaned up. The next day, the smell's gone. It's as if it never happened. I spoke about this last week a bit, that God is working on a day where he can walk with us, uh, as uh, Adam put it, in the cool of the garden. Nothing has changed. Every interaction that God has had with men in the Bible is in hopes that one day you'll return to him, and in that moment you'll, you'll run towards him and he'll run towards you. Right? And it's hard for us to believe this because it makes God to seem undignified. It makes him seem like a fool, you know? Like one of those movies where you see guys act dumb because they like a girl. That's what it's like. And it's so hard to believe that the God of heaven and earth can act like that, that can be like that. Maybe that's where you get it from. You ever thought about that, men? Maybe that's where you get it from. Do you know he just wants a relationship with you like you, you, you have with one of your close friends? How about this? This one I had with me. How about like the one you have now that you're grown up with your parents? You ever see how that relationship evolves? When you're a kid, man, it's like my, when I was a kid, my parents, uh, you know, they tell you everything to do. They, they ground you. They, I mean, like they rule heavy you, man. They, that my, my dad ruled with the fear of God, man. It, I, I mean, if, 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 if I had to pick a book between Old Testament and New Testament, we definitely were like all about Leviticus in my house up until like the age of like 15 or 16. And my, I swear, if, if uh, my poor dad would have been, like, making so many sacrifice offerings, if it was Old Testament, uh, to keep make sure his sons had any chance of going to heaven, man. And then, I, and then I graduated. I became 18. I went to the Marine Corps. Can I tell you something? My parents have become, like, the, it's the strangest thing. They've become such wonderful friends. Not, not, yeah, they're my parents, and yeah, they're my mom and dad, but, like, how we talk is different. How we approach each other is totally different now. We talk about grown-up things now. Things that, as a, uh, I'll be honest, as a 16-year-old uh, to my mom, be like, no, you ain't talking about that. That's embarrassing as I'll get out. Uh, but can say now. God, God wants that. God wants that evolution of friendship with you. Like, I, I know there's days where you're going to be the child to him, right? And you want to come and you want to be like Reese and you just want to be held when you're crying. And then there's the days where God's just going to be like your best friend. Like, let's go get a cup of coffee together and just hang 
Can we just do that today? You don't have to say anything to me. You don't have to talk about it right now. And they're just your friend when you just, he's just your friend when you need it. And, and this truth is riddled all throughout the Bible. I was taking a look at the, uh, the life of Gideon the other day in, in my morning devotions. And Gideon is remembered for fighting so few, or with fighting with so few people, right? He fought these great amounts of armies, and God was always tearing down his armies. And when I began to talk to Joy about this, that's all, like, all she remembered about him. And most people, that's all they remembered about him. But a few of us ever really remember like his actual relationship. So I began to talk to, to, like I said, my wife about it. She's like, I don't remember any of that. And I'm like... I know that's the part we skip over because it's not, honestly, it's not as interesting. And truthfully, I think it's maybe too exposing in how we really are. If you look at, over to Judges chapter 6. And this is a good little chunk, but we, we need to grab it. It's chapter 6, verses 11 through 23. Judges 6. 11 through 23. I'll read it real quick. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. <laughs> Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? I mean, didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you, you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it's really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I'll stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat with a basket of flour and baked some bread with yeast. Then carrying the meat in the basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, place the meat and unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told, and then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of his staff in his hand, and the fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all that he had. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O oh, sovereign God, I am doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. It's funny to me how we talk to God sometimes. And it's also a sign of great greatness, uh, of God's greatness, that he's not intimidated by our doubt, our lack of trust, and unfriendliness. I mean, when I read that, I was like, that sounds about like how I talk to God. This is God. You're going to do a great job. Where have you been, bro? Where have you been, man? Like, I've been praying to you all year. You're going to answer one prayer and then ditch out for the rest of the time? Oh, nobody else thinks like that. That's just me. I'm sorry. I pray. I'm sorry, but like, i got to be real with God, or if I can't be real with God, who else can I be real with? And this is what I love about Gideon, man. That's Gideon. Uh-huh. I heard about you. I heard about great things you've done back then. Where are you now? Where are you now? And it's, God's not intimidated. And, and, and Gideon, first of all, he exposes a great truth at the heart of every generation, that when there are times of spiritual drought, we all become doubters and we all get cynical. We all do. 
We all, you know, it's funny to me how much we talk about miracles. Even in Pentecost, I come from the very strong Pentecostal background in the last 15 years. And can I tell you, it's funny how much to me that we talk away miracles and we talk away the supernatural because it's not happening today. We're like, well, it just doesn't happen as much anymore. Or uh, it's this or that. We have like 50 million reasons why it doesn't happen today rather than just admit that we're not really all that close with God. There's a lot of excuses out there. Just not sure that they're good ones. We all get doubtful. We all get cynical. Gideon also exposes his lack of understanding when he says, why has all this happened to us and where's the God of our forefathers? Why hadn't he showed his face? Well, brother, do your history. See how many times they've walked away from God. See how many times they try to do their own thing, have their own way. I mean, in the beginning of Judges, it all starts out ugly. As a matter of fact, the very first series we did here at Mosaic was out of Judges 3, where, where God says, I'm going to leave these nations upon the earth so that you will learn what war is. Let's be honest. If our kids talk like the way Gideon just talked to God, we'd probably pop their mouth. <laughs> I don't think we'd be so patient with them. And I don't bring up Gideon by accident here. I, I think he does a great job representing our thoughts and our actions. We're a lot like Gideon. This is just my studies, guys. This is where I've been this, this, this week. We're the weakest. We're unknown. We're nobody. We're scared. Um, we have a foolish mouth, and we're oblivious to some of the most spiritual things. We struggle to trust. We struggle to believe. Uh, and the world needs us. Our people need us. Our children need us. But we can't see ourselves as a tool ordained by God for great things. That's always somebody else, right? I mean, even as a pastor, I get so many people, that they're like, oh, I think this will be a great ministry. I think this will be a great ministry. And as pastors, like I said, we've had a tendency to go, well, it sounds like God's got a call in your life, and that's where somebody backs down. Why? Why do you back down? If it's a good idea, maybe God's given it to you. Why? Because you're the weakest? Because you're nobody? Sounds like the perfect candidate. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you read the Bible? It's full of weak nobodies that become somebodies. It's full of them. It's like the perfect candidate. An old St. Franciscan priest, and I'm just telling you, this is where I'm at, and as God was speaking to me, an old St. Franciscan priest said this, what is the story of my priesthood? It is the story of an unfaithful man through whom God continues to work. Amen. He wrote this again. He says, what a word of healing and forgiveness and comfort it is for many of us priests who have discovered that we are earthen vessels who fulfill Jesus' prophecy of I tell you solemnly this day and night before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And can I tell you something, man? I disown him all the time. Every time I'm scared to talk to him for fear of what others might say, or think, or refuse to share the good news of the gospel to my neighbors. I'm guilty. Every time I fail to simply just do what he asked me to do, I disown him. Listen, I feel weighty today, not only in my heart, but in my spirit. I feel the weight of what God has laid out before us. The difficulty in what God is asking us. The, the, the hardship of what it's going to take to get there. And it has less to do with the church and more to do with my heart. Just being honest. 
I feel the weight of conforming to the world and the temptation to take the easier road to church success rather than staying on course and actually meeting the need of revival. I feel the temptation to manipulate, to promote, and sell this church as if Jesus is some commodity that can simply be bought and sold. But that would betray everything that Jesus has done for me and my friendship. And my friendship with him is more valuable, it's more sacred, more intimate, more human, very deeply personal. I remember this in the moment, the Bible is very clear in Deuteronomy 4.30. It says, when you're in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey Him. Sounds simple, but it's not. The task is so big, and I feel so small. To return to God is a big task, and I feel so small. In the struggle of communing with God uh, and wondering what I'm supposed to say to you this week, I, I found myself preaching to the choir here as much as I'm hoping that you can receive this and appreciate a kind and gentle word from God. For God's word to me this morning was simply this. I work in the small things, the subtle things. God said, I am neither flashy nor self-promoting. I will make much of my father and little, very little of myself. I came to serve, not to be served. I came to you and met you right where you're at. Now go to them and meet them right where they're at. I delight in the small things. I mean, aren't you glad he, he delights in and uses the small things of this world? I mean, after all, God wreaked havoc through Gideon with such a small number, right? I mean, he says, he keeps saying, well, I've finally got the army. This is the one that's going to do it. He's like, yeah, yeah, chop it down in half. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we'll chop it in half. But let's, no, no, even more so. And he keeps chopping it down to where it's so small, it's like, there's no way we can win. Or how about shepherd boys? Let's just give a, a tiny little shepherd. Rud, actually, the Bible says the word ruddy shepherd boys. Let's go ahead and place them in front of nine-foot giants and just see what happens. Can I be honest? There's nothing more masculine than a teenage boy holding up the head of a nine-foot giant, bloody and all, out there on the hill. God uses these small, tiny, tiny things. How about Jonathan and the armor bearer? We talked about it over the last few Wednesdays. Ago, uh, two guys who basically instigate the entire battle, the first battle, the really big battle with the Philistines, and end up winning. Two guys. The theme is riddled throughout the whole Bible, and God's process is not even, it's not void today. The world still listens to, listen here, man, this is worth writing. The world still listens to the loudest voice, but God is still the still small voice calling to you today. Make no mistake, I understand that, man, the reason social media is so prevalent and so well used is because it's nothing but a bullhorn. And it's a loud voice. It rings in your ears. You wake up and you're looking at Facebook, Instagram, and every other thing trying to yell at you and scream at you and tell you everything else about the world. And the, half the reason we're going to struggle to return is because God is not the loudest voice. He is the most powerfulest voice, but he's not the loudest. He is the still small voice waiting for someone to have relationship with. And you might not realize the amount of yelling that the church does at times, but his word is true and he doesn't need to raise his voice to have us. You ever notice that? I've never had God had to yell at you. You better get right, son. 
Usually it came from me uh, vomiting out my emotions and pouring myself out and God going, it's okay, I forgive you. In such the sweetest, quietest voice. Or God saying something to me like he does Gideon. Stand up, man of God. Come on, my greatest war. I mean, he says these things that aren't even true about Gideon. Right? I mean, we see that. They're not true. It's like almost like something we speak over our children, right? Our children's future have yet to be written, and I know that you don't know what's actually going to happen in the future, but you don't say, hey, guess what? You're going to be drug addict. You don't walk around telling your kid that, do you? There's nobody that, I'm telling you, no matter what drug addict you might see on the street, there's no mother out there that wished that over their children. You think God wishes bad things over you? No, he calls you things that are not declares him so. I'm telling you, what, what I have found in the voice of God is that God speaks through everyday life, man, if we'll just listen. I wrote this this morning, so bear with me if it's rough, but this was the Spirit of the Lord speaking to me this morning. I told my wife I was going to talk about her. The church is a lot like my wife. She never feels pretty unless her hair and makeup are done. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. I see her when she gets up in the morning, makeup kind of smeared and running, because it needs to be constantly fresh to stay perfect. Why can't she just keep it perfect all the time? Because it's exhausting. It'd also be fake. Truthfully, her real face under, under the makeup is beautiful all by itself. It doesn't need anything. However, since the time she was born, this world has told her that she will never truly be beautiful without it. This is the church, folks. That's a lie. Church, you are broken, but you are beautiful. You don't need fancy promotion to make you make to have people make people like you, okay? You don't need the best programs. You don't need the best worship, lest you forget what you are. You're a sign of hope to the nations that God loves the small things, the things that bear his image, an image of serving and being a servant, of being humble, low in the least of these. We weren't supposed to look so fancy. That was the point. That was the point. Jesus came to the lepers, the ones nobody would touch. Guess what? They probably still don't want to touch the guy. Some churches do a great job with putting their makeup on. And in doing so, they teach others to wear makeup as well. And then all of a sudden, we have a church full of people that are never really free to be themselves. Because they're too busy hiding their imperfections and being honest about their brokenness. It's just where I'm at this week, guys. I feel the weight this morning, how hard it is. I don't know, it seemed, well, how hard is it? What are we doing? Well, man, it's like even this, this whole moment right here, this, this little segment, we do worship and then we do all this. None of that's in the Bible. <laughs> None of that is. How did we get here? I think it was a subtle change throughout the years as what would be better, right? We tried to figure out how do we organize to create more disciples because that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to go and make disciples. God must love numbers because he must want us to put numbers on the map. The more we make, the more God loves us. That's not true. That's not true. And so you feel criticized and you feel cynical because you've been judged your whole life. Well, I only brought like one person to church all last year and they didn't even come. That was just like Easter. 
And, and you get up and you hear preaching every week about how horrible you are. And pressured, guilted, and all these things that we do as preachers to manipulate you. And I just don't see that in Jesus. <laughs> I see him loving people in such a way that they just want to tell somebody. You know what? I've met a lot of your friends. You know why? Because you love them. And when you love people, you introduce people because you want people to love the things that you love. When you love Jesus, you will introduce Jesus. People will see you'll become, it'll become, well, the God of Jim, the God of Joy, God of Wendy, God of Eric. He just, it just he becomes known that way. Why? Because I love Jesus. You're going to hear me talk about Jesus. Why would I go, uh, some of you know this, I, I work three jobs and, and do this. And why would I go and do something like that? Why don't I quit one or the other? Man, because now God's got me on the mission field. I'm a witness everywhere I get to go now. And I can be the light. I guarantee I'm going to talk about Jesus, not because I'm this awesome professional witnesser. I don't read books. I don't have a plan like I'm going to sit down and we're going to go through the Roman road. Which those are all good things, man. Good things to know. But here's what I want to do. I want to be your friend. I want to love you for you. You don't have to have a facade around me. And I promise you, that alone is rare. It's rare. And in, the, and in that moment, I can love you like Jesus loves you, just as you are. As Brennan would say, not as you should be, for none of us are as we should be. I will not let Mosaic become, a church, become the kind of church that needs makeup, despite our temptation to be, as the Bible would say, uh, like all the other nations. <laughs> Israel always had this desire to be like all the other nations. Give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. It's always saying that. We just want to be like everybody else, God. Sorry, you're in the wrong church for that one. You're called to be different, to be set apart, to be a prized possession. We will return to God or we will die trying. Period. Oh, man, I, the old saying, right, the one that you're aware of is give me liberty or give me death. I heard Ravenhill one time say, we need to grasp that and say, give me revival or give me death. It's all or nothing. I will have him. I will, I will, cap, I will capture God or I will not rest until I do. And what has God promised? That if I seek him, I will find him. That if I knock, the door will be open. So I'm going to bang on that door, and I'm going to seek with all my heart to find him and capture him to where there are no more excuses. Well, we live in a day and age where miracles are a little bit different than they were back then. No more excuses about why things aren't the way in the book of Acts as they are today. No more fancy theologies to make up reasons why it's not the same. I mean, the truth of the matter, if we were to, if we were to get really gritty, is that we don't approach God like in the book of Acts does. No one here is giving up their possession. Listen, Acts 2. Everybody, everybody always talks about this. We all want Acts 2, man. The Holy Spirit pours itself out. God does miraculous healings. We see Peter come up, and he's just like walking through places. People are getting healed. And Paul like just dropping handkerchiefs, and people getting him. And, oh, we want to see that day. We want to see that day. Do you not remember what it took to get there? First of all, it took Jesus dying. It took him resurrecting. It took him teaching a little bit longer to bring them into unity. There was a struggle still there, all right? And then once that even happened, they had to wait and pray like there is no tomorrow. Pray. 
And then even when it does happen, persecution begins to take you. We forget about all the other things that are happening in the background. That when it finally does get good is when everybody starts getting killed. And by the way, not just outside the church, Ananias and Sapphira died at the hand of a preacher who said, you know what, there is no lying to the Holy Ghost. Aren't you glad I ain't that kind of preacher? We forget that Barnabas is famous because he gave all his land up so the poor could have food. All his possessions and became a poor preacher who lived on the road with Probably the worst guy to go hang out with because he just got beat all the time, Paul. He, he became poor so that we might have acts too. He sold all his possessions. And then when he did it, everybody else started to. By the way, when we get into Paul's letters into the epistles, they're all talking how we should take up money for Jerusalem. Why? Because nobody has none anymore. They're all poor over there. Why? Because they gave everything away. What? We can say, well, man, that was dumb. Then they need to stay afloat. I, I don't know. What do you think was more important? Revival? Or being poor? You're here because of revival. You're here because Acts 2 did happen. An explosion happened. An explosion in generosity. An explosion in giving. An explosion in the Holy Spirit. Healings, miracles, signs, wonders. We can get in the debate about tongues or not. Either way, it did happen. The Bible said it. And whether you like it or not, it happened. Now, I don't know. I, you know, I use Google Translator, but the Holy Spirit would be nice. Right? It's going to be hard to go back. Because to go back means God might ask more of you than he's ever asked of you. It's going to be hard because the temptation, I want to just tell everybody, can't we just promote? Can't we get on a bullhorn tell everybody? Can't we just social media blitz and tell people? Who are we going to tell? More church folk? I mean, really, the type of people that really need to, to hear what we have, they probably run in circles that we're not part of sometimes. It means getting in our own, we're going to have to be uncomfortable, meet people where they're at. Work with people that are sometimes so difficult to work with because they're strung out. You can't trust them. I know. They'll steal from you. Okay? But God loves them. And it doesn't take much. God turns one of those around. That's it, man. Next thing you know, he's on fire. and he. I mean, I'm going to tell you what. We all burn the brightest when we first get saved, right? I mean, there's nothing like, I've told the Lord many times, God, if I wake up tomorrow and you've erased all the theology out of my head, I will praise your name. Just being honest. Because when I first got saved, boy, I felt like, oh, a fire like no other. Now it's like a deepening sadness. It, it's, it's, don't get me wrong. It, it's not like I'm depressed, but I hurt now for the things that hurt God. Right? I mean, think about it. God loves a woman that doesn't love him. And guys, man, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but it hurts. It hurts to love a woman that don't love you or just love somebody that doesn't love you back. And we as a people struggle to love God in the way that he loves us. God gave everything for us. Everything. You don't think he valued Jesus? Oh, my goodness. Like I said, we will have a prayer night on Good Friday, and we will grieve with God for that night. For he had to give up his son that night. I, I would, I, I'm not going to lie. I have sat here all my life and celebrated that day as a day where I've 
where God has done something great for me, for me, for me, for me, for me, and have never thought that God might be hurting in that moment, that I should go and grieve with God for what he had to do. Now, he doesn't regret his decision. Make no mistake about that. But you don't think, you, you don't think there's a tenderness every time? Oh, I, I want it. I have pride. Look at my most prized possession is you, and I have given my only son. You can't question uh, my word. My word is written in the blood of my son. My word is powerful. You've seen how far I'm committed. I've never asked that once from you, God would say. But it cost him dearly. And on Good Friday, we will. And we need to see those moments. That's when we're getting close with God. When God becomes this so personal that we can feel as God feels. We hurt as God hurts. And guess what? We're happy when God's happy. And we rejoice when God's, when God's rejoicing. And he does. And I'm going to tell you, God's not a sitting around depressed God. God's not a God who sits back and does nothing. God is patient. He allows some things to manifest and he interacts in others. Because he understands what's healthy and what's right. Now, I don't know if this uh, spoke to you this morning. I, I know it was heavy for me, and I think I needed to preach more to myself this morning than any of you, but it's stuff that needed to be said, needed to come out. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you come in this morning and you struggle with the Gideon complex. What are you talking about, God? I'm the weakest of my clan here. I'm like nobody. And I'm here to put you on call. That's not true. You're beautiful just as you are. You're made in his image. That's enough, by the way. You don't have to be anything more. And he just wants some time with you. Something fierce, he wants some time with you. You stand to your feet. I want to pray for some of you this morning because I know that as I was going to preach that, that uh, even as I prayed this morning and writing that last little bit about the makeup in the church, and man, I know we struggle there. I know we struggle to feel like we need to look a certain way or appear a certain way. I'm going to tell you right now, in my heart, that struggle's there. Even as a pastor of the church, uh, the temptations to try to uh, fancy us up, you know, big, big promoting and all this other stuff. I'm not going to say, you know, I just don't think we need it. I think Jesus is beautiful. I think his uh, word is wonderful. And I think God has done such a wonderful thing. I, I think what people need to see is, is uh, they need to see our heart. <laughs> That's never, you're never going to see that any other way, but unless you uh, talk to someone face to face, unless you meet them where they're at. That's the only way they're going to really see what kind of person you're at, right? I mean, it's always easy to show somebody your home because you're in your house. Kind of like the boss of your own home. It's your home. You're on your ground. You feel more comfortable. There's nothing more awkward than going to somebody else's house, especially if you're just meeting them for the first time. It's, it's, it's different. You're trying to get to know them. Man, I know y'all. Y'all be looking at everything just like I do. It's how we are. We're looking at people. We're seeing who they are. We're seeing what they're, I mean, our house kind of tells, tells that story. So, so let this house tell its own story. It's made up of broken people. That's why we called it mosaic, guys. <laughs> a mosaic is a masterpiece of, made up from broken pieces, man. It's artwork. God's doing this art, man, where 
you're broken, I'm broken, and it's okay. <laughs> God pieces it all together, and he makes it just right. I saw a movie once where it was talking about a, it was kind of a Christian movie, and, and this lady's like, my life's broken, it can't be replaced. My life's like this glass vase, and she breaks it on the ground. That's my life right there, broken all in pieces, and it can't be, can't be mended back. And, and the guy who's like, Jesus basically says, that's not true. That's not true. And he's actually an artist, and he picks it up, and she leaves. And he ends up leaving town, but before he leaves town, he leaves her a note with a box. And in the note, it says, your life can be made beautiful just from the broken pieces. And she opens the box, and he had reworked the glass to be this beautiful angel thing. And he had, like, pieced all these pieces of glass together so it would look like this angel thing. You might not be the same vase again, but it doesn't mean you won't be more pretty or more beautiful. There's beauty in brokenness, and we need to grasp onto that. And we need to uh, allow God to work with us there. So I'm going to pray, and if there's a few of you struggling there, you think you're the weakest. You feel like you need to be made up. Come on now. God sees you. He loves you just like you are. He sees you. I love my wife without me. I always tell her all the time she's prettier without makeup. All the time. Because I, I know her. I see her. She'll never have to be that way. Well, I don't want anybody else to see me that way. I know. That's the church's problem, too. I know. We got to get there, though, where we allow people to see us for who we are. It's then that we'll win people. You mean Jesus really does accept you like you are? Yes. He really does. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Lord, you're a wonderful, uh, a delightful God. More than that, God, you're my friend. You're my father when I need uh, wisdom. My friend when I need someone to talk to and hang out with. I love you. You accept me like I am. Lord, you're helping me work on becoming better. Not, not for the sake of making you more happy. but in a way that makes me holy. In a way that makes me blameless and pure. Lord, you've shown me a better way. And it's in your son, Jesus. Lord, help me and help us, God, this church, God, to bear up the image of Christ. That we may be Christ to others, God. And Father, I'm, I'm going to pray for your children now. And I would pray that you would begin to just anoint me with a special anointing, God. That as I begin to pray for them, Father, that they will experience your love in a way that is tangible, God. So that their mind and their heart can testify that they know they have met you at the altar today, God. And that you are the true and real God that you are tangible and physical as well as spiritual and right now if you would come if you, if you would like to be prayed for we want to take this time just to pray for you uh, I'm going to ask you to come up as a step of faith just to come up and, uh, and allow us to pray for you if you're struggling with um, if you're struggling there I feel like you're the weakest like you need to be made up. 
struggling that somebody's going to see your brokenness. If you're struggling with uh, cynicism at the church, maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you're like uh, the woman we spoke about last week. The church has uh, dragged you right out of bed. You got bruises from what the church and how rough they've been to you. If that's you this morning, just come forward. Father, right now.
Father, we your burden is light, God. Your yoke is easy, God. We lean on you right now, God, to know the unknowable. Lord, we don't see the future, but you do. And we lean on your kind words this morning. We, we lean on your heart this morning, God, and we trust it, God, as, as hard as that is for us, God. And, and I don't want to give just lip service to the word trust, God, but Lord, I, tr- I trust you. I believe in you. Lord, to the end, God, to the end. To the end, God. Help us to see this thing through. Help us to return to you. And return your people to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, I I love you. I, I appreciate you so much. And every time I get to see you, I promise you my heart leaps to be able to see you. Um... Uh, just have a wonderful week. We, we will be here on Wednesday. Uh, I encourage you to be a part of Wednesdays. Wednesdays are just wonderful time. It's more of a time of family and, and fellowship as we share a meal together and spend about 15, 20 minutes uh, uh, in a Bible study. And uh, if you would just, I'm telling you, it's really an amazing time where we just kind of get to know each other and kind of continue this family atmosphere. Thank you, guys. Y'all are dismissed this morning.